All right, well, good morning. Uh, sorry, I'm running a little bit behind this morning, and we've got quite a great deal to cover. Um, so we will uh, open in prayer and, and start right in. Our Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we are before you this morning. And Lord, before you and before this congregation, um, I confess, uh, Lord, and acknowledge my, um, my own poverty of spirit. I am but a poor student of your word and an even poorer uh, messenger uh, of truths that are too high and lofty for me, um, Lord, yet you um, have promised that in our weakness your strength is made perfect. I pray that you would undertake for us uh, in this time as we approach um, the awesome power of the truth of your word and that your Holy Spirit would um, minister that power to our hearts, um, that he would um, bring the conviction of the truth and the knowledge of the truth to us, um, Lord, for you have exalted your word above all your name, and I pray that you would um, give us now a deep sense of the value and the worth and the awesome power that is in it. Lord, we look to you, um, we seek your spirit's power to unite our hearts to fear your name together, and we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, so last week, uh, Stephen faithfully walked us through an, an introduction to systematic theology and uh, sort of laid some of the groundwork for um, all of the studies that are going to follow together, giving us some definitions and uh, some structure and casting a vision for our study in systematic theology, um, a vision of humility and of the Spirit's empowerment of the truth that we're, we're going to consider together. Um, so this morning, the, the major doctrine or teaching um, that we are going to be considering together is the doctrine of bibliology. The bibliology can be defined as the doctrine of God's word. Basically, what does God's word tell us about itself. What do the scriptures teach of the scriptures? Now, if we were to think of the sum of all of the doctrines contained in the canon of scripture as a structure, then our subject this morning would be the foundation upon which all of these other doctrines, all of these other truths are built it comes first in our study through the major doctrines because it underpins everything that is to follow what we believe about this book will fundamentally affect every other belief that we hold. It is the foundation. And it is important that the foundation be understood as right. Um, this past summer... One of the things that, that my family was most sad about losing to uh, coronavirus uh, w was the opportunity to go to something we look forward to every year, and that is the uh, Shakespeare Festival in St. Mary's um, here in Kansas. And uh, so the, the, the kids look forward to that like Christmas, and they were just brokenhearted when it was canceled. 
And so to kind of make that better, we, we promised, we said, all right, well, we're going to have our own Shakespeare Festival here out at, our, out at our home. And so for half the summer, Lucy and Annie and I were planning this, this thing, and, and they were adamant that we had to have a stage and we had to have the tower that we did Romeo and Juliet. And uh, so we had to have Juliet's tower. And I had all these grand plans. I had drawn this up for exactly how it was supposed to, to be constructed. And um, so the, the week of the festival came up, and te- uh, Lucy and Annie and I went to the hardware store and bought everything that we would need to construct this tower. And uh, I, I just took my plans. I jumped right in. The only problem is I am not a carpenter. And uh, I, I can't seem to build a Lego house that will stand up straight. And so uh, by the time I had this platform, and my, my philosophy was, uh, the bigger the better. So this thing was, was standing on 10-foot stilts, and I thought, before I can have my daughter climb up on this thing, I probably better test it out. And uh, as, I'm, as I'm getting ready to, to climb onto this, this platform, um, Lucy and Annie, George and Miles are all watching me, and they're all just this, this look on their face of abject terror. They're like, Dad, I don't know, maybe we don't want to do this. I said, no, 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 it's all good. I've got all the kinks worked out. Solid as a rock. And uh, climbed up. My foundation was unstable. And the kids got to watch me ride that tower all the way to the ground. It's important that the foundation be firm. So just like the fundamental flaws in the foundation of my Shakespearean set led to its downfall, a false or a flawed belief about the nature of this book will lead to doctrinal instability. It is therefore of great importance that we get the doctrine of bibliology right. Now the doctrine of God's word is actually predicated upon another essential truth, another essential doctrine, and that is the doctrine of revelation. Revelation can be understood as the truth that God makes himself known. Romans chapter 1 verse 19 reads, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. This God... The God of the Bible is a God of self-disclosure, of self-revelation. He reveals himself. He makes himself known. And why does he do this? He reveals himself in order that we may know him. This is the primary purpose for which we are created. It is the reason that we are saved. The Westminster Shorter Catechism reads that the chief end of man is, some of you know it, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To enjoy God is to enjoy a relationship of knowing and being known, growing in the knowledge of God. And it is to this end and for this purpose that we are made. And in our study of these truths, in our study through systematic theology, it is important We be careful not to lose sight 
of this in our approach to the study of biblical doctrine. Stephen touched on this last week when he said, we want to be careful that it is not all about the data and it is about the insight. The insight that we seek is insight into who God is. So if we divorce our pursuit of right doctrine from our pursuit of God himself, then we miss the whole point. The truths are there to point us to him. We must never stop asking the question, what does this doctrine tell me about who God is? Because if we do, we invite a sort of academic apathy. The knowledge of God is the beating heart at the center of Bible doctrine. Without it, even the most precious and awesome and earth-shattering truths that exist can become dry and stale. But when a growing personal knowledge of God is our objective, when we pray to that end and seek the Spirit's empowerment, then the truth comes to life. So I want to try this out on this doctrine at hand, the doctrine of God's revelation of himself. What does this tell us about who he is? I really believe that we could park here all day because the implications of the truth of God's revelation are massive. First of all, you can see that because God initiates his self-revelation, he is a gracious and merciful provider. We could know nothing of him if he did not reveal himself first to us. We also see in the fact and the truth that he desires to be known, that he is a relational God, the creator, seeks to be in relationship with his creatures. From this, we discern his unbelievable condescension to us. He is a God of infinite humility that he would reveal himself in a way that we can know him. So how has God revealed himself? What are the means by which he has done this? The first way in which God has disclosed himself to us is through general revelation. General revelation is essentially God's testimony about himself to us through creation. Romans chapter 1 verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And then Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. Now, I want to do an exercise here together. I want to make this a bit interactive because general revelation, we're told, in these passages is universally accessible. The creation declares God's glory, his glory being the sum total of the excellence of his attributes. So God's creation tells us who he is, and it doesn't say it in uncertain terms. It doesn't say it quietly. It says in the passage in Psalm 19 that it pours forth. It is evident. So I want to look at some scenes 
together from creation. And let me invite you, as you, as you look at these, uh, to just go ahead and pipe up and say, what attributes of God are evident in these scenes of his creation? So here's our first. This is a, this is a photograph taken by the Hubble telescope of Orion's belt. What does this tell us about who God is? Majesty, his greatness, he's big, he's infinite, he loves beauty, absolutely, yes, wisdom, he's creative. I think these are all understatements, <laughs> but they are true. Okay, what about a scene like this? What does this tell us about? He's powerful. He's in control. Almighty. What's this? He's above all. He loves his people. Yes. You might take from something like this that he is fearful. He's untamed. He's a loving father. Compassionate, gentle, he did, he's the creator, he made animals. Perfection, detail. We could spend a lot of time here, um, but I hope that that does serve to illustrate in just these four photographs and the few minutes that we've taken to consider what they say about God, the impact of his revelation in creation. It pours out speech. It is evident. It's there. It's his gracious provision of self-disclosure. So general revelation speaks to God's testimony through his creation. General revelation, however, uh, being even though it is universally accessible, it is also limited. Because as much knowledge of God as we can glean from creation, it's insufficient to save. No one can be saved by what can be known through general revelation, which is why we can be thankful that God has revealed even more through special revelation. Special revelation can be understood as the means by which God reveals himself directly and with greater detail. He has done this in different ways. He's done it through direct actions, through dreams and visions. And the ultimate example of his special disclosure and special revelation is the incarnation when uh, God the Son took on human flesh, 
human limitations to live among us and to die in the stead of sinners. This is the ultimate expression of God's self-revelation. And finally, he has revealed himself in the scriptures. The 66 books of the Bible, written by more than 40 different authors across thousands of years, is the most comprehensive representation, and it is the full expression of God's self-revelation. So this brings us back to our key doctrines this morning, bibliology. Now that we have a, a, a sort of framework of God's revelation to underpin our study of this doctrine. The doctrine of bibliology speaks to the nature of the scriptures and to the process by which they came into being. Now, within this broad, overarching category, this doctrine of bibliology, we have these more narrowly focused doctrines uh, that we're going to be looking at three of them this morning. First of all is the doctrine of inspiration, the doctrine of authority, and the doctrine of inerrancy. So inspiration is the first that we're going to look at, and this is the process by which God's revelation is captured and recorded in the scriptures. Our key texts are going to be 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. So let's hone in on the 2 Timothy 3.16 passage. All scripture, and this is the King James Version, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and for instruction in righteousness. Now, our modern usage of the word inspiration can tend towards um, some ambiguity. We might say that someone or something inspires us, and by that we mean that uh, their example gives us motivation. Um, we might say that we have been inspired, that an idea popped into our head um, we use it in any number of ways uh, that can be pretty subjective. We need to be more precise uh, in our understanding when it comes to the doctrine of inspiration. So the word which the King James Version and the New American Standard Version translate as inspiration is the Greek word uh, theonoustos. Theo meaning God, meneo meaning to exhale. Now, the ESV renders this word probably more accurately as breathed out. All scripture is exhaled. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's a vivid word picture. So what does it mean? It speaks to the method by which God has recorded his word. God himself is the true source of the scriptures. This is what we're to understand by this phrase, breathed out. All 66 books written by 40 different authors written over the course of thousands of years ultimately proceed from him. He breathed them into existence. This is the same way in which he brought into existence the universe and everything that is and all that it contains. 
The doctrine of inspiration teaches us that the words contained in this book are the words of God. And when the scripture speaks, God speaks. Now, what is truly incredible as we, as we look at this doctrine is that while God superintends and authors the scriptures, he does this through the agency of human writers. Now, this process can look different, and it does across the spectrum of all the books of the Bible. Sometimes we see, as with Moses in the writing of the Pentateuch, that God may dictate word for word, verbatim, his message. And yet in other examples, we see someone like David, who's writing songs and poetry based on his own life experiences. And yet this is the inspired word of God. And yet another example, you can see Solomon and others curating and, and gathering together a collection of wise sayings, as in the book of Proverbs. Um, and in yet another example that, that J.D. was reminding me of last night, um, in John Mark's gospel, you have what is basically a research paper taken from uh, interviews after interview with those who were eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus' life. So it can look different, and it does. But in every one of these instances, while God is sovereignly superintending what is written, at the same time, he utilizes the writers themselves, their minds, their unique vocabularies, their personalities, and their life experiences to write his word. So far from being passive participants, they are being supernaturally caught up and woven into this process. And this speaks so profoundly to the depth of the sovereignty of God as he intimately orchestrates every aspect of the biblical writers' lives so that they are prepared prepared to deliver his message in just the way that he has sovereignly ordained. All of this so that we might have this living book, God's word of self-revelation, in a language that we can understand with stories that we can relate to. And this book, like Jesus Christ, the word incarnate, is both fully divine and fully divine human. What an incredible mystery this is. Can we just take a moment to stand in awe at the wonder of this? God breathed out his word through men as they put pen to parchment so that we could know him. So how does this happen? The doctrine of inspiration gives us even greater insight to this process because it speaks not only to the divine causation behind the writing of the scriptures, um, but it also speaks to the means and the method by which he caused these words to be written down. And that is via the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, we read, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Here we see that divine causation, God authoring the work. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Greek word that's translated here as carried along means to bear, to carry, 
to bring forth. The idea is of a, of a man carrying their, their child or carrying someone too weak to walk on their own. This is a very vivid word picture, again, which is meant to give us insight into the nature of the Holy Spirit's work in this process. These men, these biblical writers, were carried by the Holy Spirit. Now, when we carry someone, we, we are, in bearing them from one place to another, lending to them our strength to accomplish something which they themselves are incapable of. The work of the Holy Spirit in inspiration is like this. Now, I'm afraid that we sometimes say with a, some degree of flippancy that God spoke through men, that they became the channels of his word. But understand this. The word of God is the very same force which spoke the universe into existence. The word of God holds power so far beyond the limits of our comprehension that for a finite human being to be united with it, to channel it, to speak it or to write it down, is like thinking that a paper sack could contain a nuclear blast. It is impossible. It requires divine enabling. These writers must be carried this is the work of the Holy Spirit in the process of inspiration. That in carrying them along, in bearing them along, he divinely enables them, lending them his divine power to think the thoughts of God and to write them down without error, in harmony with all other scriptures, the old with the new and the New Testament with the old, with profound authority and perfect clarity. This is the doctrine of inspiration. Secondly, we want to look, and I've fallen behind. I'm not accustomed to this uh, PowerPoint thing. So, um, The second sub-doctrine, uh, kind of under this overarching theme of bibliology that we want to look at together this morning, is the doctrine of authority. The doctrine of authority answers the question, does the Bible have the right to exercise authority over my life? The question of biblical authority is actually grounded in the authority of God himself. So to move forward, I think we'll, we'll, we'll need to establish kind of a working definition of authority. The Oxford Dictionary defines authority as power or right to enforce obedience moral or legal supremacy, the right to command or to give an ultimate decision. This definition is uh, consistent with biblical truth, so I think it's a good way for us to understand authority as it relates to God. And we have many different authority structures that we'll we're familiar with, but the ultimate authority, original authority, according to the Bible, belongs to God and to God alone. Now, evidence of this is everywhere. We find evidence of this truth in rational thought, in general revelation, as we've seen, in our own personal experience, as we relate to God and to his word. But the primary evidence, again, is found in the scriptures. 
So the legitimacy of God's authority is established on the basis of some key biblical truths. The first of which, God created the heavens and the earth and all that exists. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The second truth which establishes the authority of God is that God owns the earth, all that it contains, and all who live in it. Psalm 24 and verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The third truth, he alone sustains his creation. Hebrews in chapter 1 verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And the final truth establishing the authority of God is that he will one day consume all that there is. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. All authority belongs to God. If we hadn't established it already, I'm going to read a few more verses just to drive the point home. Psalm 62 and verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 6. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Revelations 4 and verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. I think it's safe to say at this point we've established a biblical basis for God's authority. Now with that in place, we can move on to the doctrine of the authority of the scriptures because... The doctrine of inspiration as the cornerstone of this foundation of bibliology provides the link for us between the authority of God and the authority of the scriptures. It's a simple logical equation. Premise A, God is authoritative. Premise B, the Bible claims to be the word of God. Conclusion the Bible is authoritative. Divine authorship, the doctrine of inspiration, and the truth that the word proceeds from God establishes the authority of the scriptures. So our answer to the question, does the Bible have the right to exercise authority over my life, is a definite and resounding yes it is the word of God. So the third doctrine, or kind of more focused sub-doctrine beneath this overarching category of bibliology that we're going to look at this morning, is inerrancy. Inerrancy means, quite simply, to be without error. Wayne Grudem uh, I think has a great definition. He says, the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything which is contrary to fact. 
In other words, the Bible always tells the truth. Now this doctrine um, today and for a long time is a doctrine under threat. Now, since the late 1600s with the advent of the so-called Age of Enlightenment, when scriptures came under the direct assault by the writings of agnostic philosophers like Voltaire and Diderot, all the way on up until today with the more insidious and subversive threat of the teachings of liberal theology, the doctrine of the inerrancy of the scriptures is under attack. Last week, Stephen introduced um, kingdom terminology into, into his lesson. And so to continue with that theme, within the kingdom of truth that is systematic theology, this doctrine of inerrancy is like the citadel under siege. It is a fortress which the enemy seeks relentlessly to overthrow because once we surrender this, every other tenet of our faith is up for grabs. You may ask, what makes this so important? Surely it's not that big of a deal to allow for some errors in the Bible. And here's why. We have seen how the doctrine of inspiration attributes authorship of the Bible to God himself. And how the doctrine of authority indelibly links the ultimate authority of God with the authority of his word. We must therefore recognize that all attempts to undermine or to cast doubt upon the veracity of Scripture, even in the smallest measure, is a direct attack on the integrity of God himself. We must take seriously our obligation as the church to guard against such error. We must be ready with an answer for why we believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures. So, real quickly, in closing, we'll look at some scriptural proofs for inerrancy. The first, again, going back to this cornerstone doctrine of inspiration. Divine authorship and divine authority establish the inerrancy of the scriptures. God cannot lie. And the scriptures claim to be the word of God. Some other scriptural proofs um, for the doctrine of inerrancy. In Psalm chapter 12, verse 6, we read that the word of God is completely pure. In Psalm 119, verse 96, we read, it is completely perfect. In Proverbs 30 and verse 5, it is true. A further evidence is to the reliability of all parts of Scripture are found in the New Testament. In places like Acts 24 verse 14 where Paul says he worships God by believing all that is laid down by the law or written by the prophets. In Luke chapter 24, verse 25, our Lord Jesus says that the disciples are behaving as foolish men in that they are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In Romans in chapter 15, verse 4, Paul says, 
Whatever was written in the Old Testament is written for our instruction. In summary, this book we have seen is the living word of God. It is the embodiment of his self-revelation, and it is the greatest treasure this life affords, which sadly sometimes collects dust on our shelves. And so much of the church spends a great deal of time today kind of mitigating what this book says, explaining it away, and enthroning scientific respectability, human experience, or societal acceptance and relevance above this word. And all of these are poor substitutes. We must seek to honor and to obey and to acknowledge the word of God as the inspired and authoritative and inerrant word. I feel like we should pray. <laughs> Father, we're so thankful to you. Lord, that you have not left us in the dark. You have not left your nature and who you are to be um, guessed at, but you have given us your revelation and you have revealed yourself in your scriptures and more fully in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you can be known, uh, Lord, because he has bridged the gap between fallen and dead uh, men in their sins um, by his atoning sacrifice on the cross. And I pray, Lord, that if there is any here this morning who does not know you, who cannot know you because they are yet in their sins, that they would turn to Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.